Hello and welcome to this Sound on Sound podcast about electronic music and all things synth. I'm Caro C and in this episode we're talking to Julie Campbell, aka Lone Lady, who's a solo musician, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, singer and producer from Tameside, just outside Manchester in England. Her urgent post-punk, funk and electronic-infused sound has garnered widespread critical acclaim, including playing on BBC's Later with Jules Holland. Lone Lady writes, performs, arranges and records everything herself and, with exception of real drums on albums one and two, plays all the instruments. To get us started, we're going to hear a clip of The Catcher, a track from Lone Lady's most recent album, Former Things. Then we'll dive straight into talking about the making of Former Things, which was released on Warp Records in 2021. Can we unpack former things a bit? Because I think it was mainly done at the time when you wouldn't have been touring. And also there was a focus around Somerset House. How did that come about? So you wrote, write all the music, but there's also obviously the gear that you must have got together. Yeah, I mean, they set up a new artist studio there um, that was kind of like a subsidised space in the heart of London. And so I was invited by the studio director, Marie McPartlin, to come and just have a look around. So I... and. I ended up being one of the first people moving in there and they showed me all these quite plush studios, which I just knew wouldn't really work for me. Um, And instead, we walked through this kind of dilapidated, empty concrete room that was really long and narrow and weird. And we just sort of paused and I said, hang on a minute, what's, what's going on with this space? You know, and unsurprisingly, I ended up in this kind of odd basement concrete space that was never meant to be used by anybody. So I got Arts Council funding to help me make the move from Manchester to London and, you know, just help me establish a kind of studio in in this basement space. I had really, at that time, really wanted to get my hands on electronic hardware. That's what I was really craving you know, so I was able to kind of get a few new toys. Um, so I got an ARP Odyssey Mark II from 1976. So that's like a, yeah, secondhand vintage analog synth. And then very kindly Benj, Ben Edwards. He's like a, um electronic artist who like works with John Fox and Wrangler, people like that. He's got probably the most, you know, substantially kitted out analog studio in the country. He very kindly lent me a COG MS-10, so another analog um, synthesizer, and he lent me a Ensonic, which is a digital synthesizer. So, and I'd bought also another the the key, the real key piece of equipment really was the dope for MIDI analog sequencer, and that was what I've used to generate a whole swathe of new material really. So that was that had three channels, so I could connect, you know connect it up with the synths or with I use samplers a lot and drum machines of course so the main really the three main pieces that I wrote former things on was was the the app the cog and and using the the sequencer so there's these you know the app had this kind of warm fizzly 
character to it, you know, broadly speaking. And then the cog was very biting and, and harsh sounding. And, you know, of course, you can modulate either synth to sound almost however you want. But they did seem to have a core character or voice. I really loved kind of using both of these synths across the album, you know, in a, and they, these were like kind of contrapuntal voices that really sort of bounced off each other and um, complemented each other and contrasted with each other. And, you know, I, I just really, really enjoyed going deep into sequencing beats, patterns, percussion, raw synth lines. Um, and I, I would be in that studio six days a week, all day long, you know. I, I mean, I was I was in that at Somerset House for about 18 months. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it took quite a long time to piece this studio together um, to make the different pieces of equipment speak to each other, the various, you know, reasons they didn't always, you know, work. So it's like a bit of a jigsaw puzzle. But eventually I sort of found a rhythm with it. And, you know, I think one of the key things was it, that it was hardware that, you know, I had the sequencer was in a rack at head height. So I wrote this record on my feet. You know, I was up and active and on my feet all day and or playing a drum pad and, you know, interchanging samplers. Like I use samplers a lot. They've got a lot of sounds on got two Akai's, a classic sort of Akai MPC 500 and a little modern version of it, a little Akai sampler. And they, they were both used a lot and they contained, for example, they would contain a, a Lindrum sample, for example, that was from my previous album, Hinterland. So that was like a real sample, if you see what I mean, rather than a downloaded one. So I had, I had a lot of fun, really, with lots of analogue synths and drum machine sounds and samples. And did you go there with some ideas already formed in terms of whether it's just the lyrics or narratives for the tracks or did it kind of happen as you were building your relationship with the equipment and the space? Yeah, I mean, I think as people probably noticed by now, I don't churn things out overly quickly. So a lot of things kind of circulate around my mind for quite a long time. So the kind of the build up to what it's going to be, it forms in my mind. But I, I knew I, I kind of needed to get my hands on some electronic hardware. Um, I, I'd always loved Cybertron's debut album from 1983. And so that sort of electro, sort of early techno, raw machine funk thing is just, I, I can't really explain why you gravitate to some things, some sounds. And, you know, but that was always something I always loved. Um, so that record was definitely sort of swirling around my mind. And also, you know, I'd done a sort of real deep dive into Cabaret Voltaire's sort of back catalogue um, around that time. And particularly the, I think, 1985 EP, Drinking Gasoline, was it really stuck in my mind. And again, just raw machine funk, really. Um, so I got hold of these since knowing that I wanted to create rhythmic melodic lines with them rather than creating atmospheric weird Doctor Who type sounds. I didn't want the synths for those kinds of textures. I wanted them for their punchy raw electro sounds that I would connect with the dope fur and sequence and just had real joy dialing in patterns really. 
interesting you say about the standing up thing because I think it reminds you to keep it more physical if you like it's more rooted in the physical isn't it than sit and get to a point where I'm like I'm listening to track and I don't know what to do next so I'll get up I'll move around maybe even dance to it to know what it's you know what's happening and what needs to happen next yeah I, I do I do feel that sitting down is a real killer it's a it is an enemy you know but I even bought like a little bar stool so I could I was sort of half stood up but half propped on a bar stool so I, and well, I'd I'd never consider the former things to be a London sounding record it was definitely um in, informed by all the stimulus of that city you know I just loved to go out and go to art galleries and things and I think that energy you know and and just having uh, you know room and space to turn things up loud was was a great thing that's why I chose that room you know it's great to just whack up the volume and was know. it just yourself going in or were other people coming in and sort of you were bouncing off them or you collaborating to some extent uh to to no extent it's um you know I go in that room and shut the door and it's just me all day long I mean that is you know that is you know I write a song it can take months even years sometimes and I, don't, I never run it by anyone to see what they think. That's just not a natural part of my music making, really. I, once I get started on a path, that's like a puzzle that has to be solved and only I can solve it, really. So uh, I just have to... I mean, it's, well, you know, after the initial um, quite playful phase of just generating cool, you know, melodies and patterns and stuff, that's that touch wood always seems to come really easily, you know, and then that that whole phase is a matter of kind of curating. You know, I, I was very, you know, I did research and I was kind of, you know, I selected the pieces that I wanted to play with for a reason and had those, had those toys to hand. But then that initial phase of uh, just generating sketches is always really fun and kind of pretty easy, really. I'm terrified to say that in case it disappears or touch wood, but uh, the really difficult part where you then sort of descend into a kind of Dante's, you know, purgatory type hellish space for about two years and then I come out the other end with a finished album. So that's, that is just how it is for me. There's, at the beginning, there's so much, there's the compulsion, there's the instinct, there's the just doing it and then all the left brain comes in and goes, wow. Well, ske <laughs> sketches are fun, but they're not a finished song. I read this about um, a novelist said this, you're haunted by the blank page and it, it terrorises you with all the possibilities that this novel could be. You know, and that's the same with music. It's like, well, wh what kind of song shall this be? And then in some ways it's a case of letting go of all the possibilities that are there at the start of making a song and just going, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose this. Committing. You know? Yeah, and it's not, none of it's the risk, none of it is... It's not a wrong choice, but it is. It's a it's a incredible battle. You know, I am sort of fairly tormented by songs that are unfinished, and they just have to be finished. And uh, you know, I I just I I often liken it to painting. I, it doesn't even occur to me that somebody else would pop in and do a brushstroke. It just doesn't make any sense to my brain. So how does that work in terms of then presenting it to the label or getting it ready for touring, if you like? Well, I mean, at some point, you know, a version of the material, you know, Warp will listen to that and they are pretty hands-off, really. You know, they kind of 
trust we both you know it's a mutual sort of trust and respect thing you know they know it's they know I'm working on it and but yeah it's more just an interest really oh what you know what's what's going on you know but it's it is hard I find it very hard to uh expose something unfinished to other people's ears really because they can't hear what I mean what I intend you know how could they mm. so in terms of then touring that you mainly toured that with Kendra and James James yeah. so um touring that with them you then had to kind of translate or interpret what you'd written to them and for them yeah again it's it's like it's it's pulling it all apart really and deciding what what feels good what looks good to play you know I didn't want to take analog synths on the road with me um and so getting to grips with a new sort of Juno synthesizer and you know inputting samples onto that was there's a lot of tech wrangles that dominated the rehearsals rather than lots of playing it was more oh this isn't quite working just endless tech wrangling with you know samples so on Kendra's side the, the sample the sample battle was the was ongoing and then on, on James's side we were forever tweaking the backing track so you know as you know it's it's a great you know um and you know endeavor is a really it's a great piece of work you know I'm, I'm sort of proud of that live show and it may never quite be that again you know I, I feel like it Probably won't because that was the most electro-focused that I might be, really. Right. You think you might have satisfied that need? Yeah, for the time being. I think the is the, there's always been a, a hybrid with me, though, with the electronics and the guitar. And my f previous album, Hinterland, we were a four-piece and we had drum pads. And I, th I think the challenge now will be going forward is what what will the live thing be and do I nudge it you know do you nudge it towards what what's the ratio of electronic to guitar and so that'll be another it's just another puzzle another tech puzzle to come yeah yeah um, and that was quite a big extensive tour wasn't it I know you were played on six music quite a lot so was that a kind of new level of Busyness, popularity, if you like. I don't know. It's, I think because of COVID, we had a, um, a European tour cancelled. Um, so that actually with my previous album, Hinterland, we, we sort of, I ventured further, further afield into, around the world, really. And so I, we were lucky with former things in that we didn't, apart from that one cancellation, I think that we managed to duck the worst of things. But it, you know, we started touring in late 21, so the world was still emerging, really. Um, and But we certainly benefited from a first wave of audiences who were just desperate to get out again. So, yeah, I, I think yeah, I had a good period of touring with Farmer Things, but it's it was definitely capped a little by COVID. Yeah, so I noticed... I think it was, yeah, obviously a good few years ago, realising that you were on Warp and um, being like, oh, there's one of the number, the few women on Warp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how did that come about? How did you end up on with Warp? Um, well, it's sort of way back when I first started sending out CDRs, of all things, these sort of lovingly little, you know, packaged CDRs with inlay sleeves and um, of these of recordings I'd made 
on my um, sort of Tascam 4-track. That was the first little humble piece of recording gear that I bought, and I bought that really sort of early on, and that really definitely set a blueprint for this this thing of just of home recording and playing the instruments myself and mixing just a real love of mixing instruments together and layering up tracks so these four track recordings were what i sent out by post to you know labels when that was still a thing i got some attention from a guy called jason white who's who is with the label 4ad and um we, you know, cut a long story short, we kind of worked together for a little while, but he, he was the one really who took me to Warp and brought me to the attention of Steve Beckett, who's like one of the, you know, co-founders of Warp. And he, yeah, he came to see me play live and yeah, it was very immediate. He just, you know, he was just, he liked it and boom, that was that. And he loved it really, you know, he loved my guitar playing and, you know, I mustn't have put him off too much in person or whatever, so... That was very kind of immediate, really. But prior to that, I guess there'd been a, you know, f- you know, a few years of sort of self-releasing and sending things out. So when was that then? When was that that you started releasing with Warp? Uh, well, the first album, Nerve Up, came out in twenty ten. So you've said so three albums. Yeah. You them? yeah. 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 Okay. Fab. Do you see things in 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 terms of once al- once one album's done, it's a case of moving on to the next? Yeah, I mean, I think because things take a, a quite a long time, the inklings and ideas and tones and colours and textures start appearing, forming in my mind. You know, way ahead of you know even before I finished what I'm doing currently, really. So you're always three steps ahead of yourself mentally you know and so I do I do know what 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 the next thing is that I'm trying to do what I'm going to be doing so yeah I at the moment I'm um moving flat and the next place I will have a uh, I just need to set up my, a home studio of sorts really so, so I, th- I think never having a sort of stable home studio is kind of on and the negative side has hampered my progress but on the plus side it's kind of kept every album very fresh sounding yeah because part of that creative process is setting up the I mean space. I'm literally building from scratch every time which yeah. is a bit tiresome I would have liked a nice studio but it's not that's not been the story but yeah I'm enjoying I'm really enjoying just playing with my tally again and you know I'd sort of taken a took a deep dive back into REM and that's when those support slots with Peter Book came up and it just feels yeah I'm just in this kind of warm woozy Telecaster guitar place again So as a fellow Manchester musician, I obviously see you doing lots and lots around the city and elsewhere. And um, you did a gig recently, didn't you, supporting, was it Luke Haynes and... Yeah, I, I supported Luke Haynes and Peter Hook. Um, they were promoting their newest album, which I don't think's out yet, um, but it was a, a delayed tour. But I just, I saw, like, R.E.M. is, like, sort of my all-time sort of favourite 
group, you know, that you know, as a as a child, I've I've been obsessed with them since I was fourteen, basically, and I just spotted that they were going to be playing Gorilla one day in Manchester, and it just seemed impossible to me that this this artist, an artist of this magnitude, was just going to be down the road, and you know, and I, I'm not very quick sometimes with these things and I was just ruminating on it for a couple of days and then I just thought hmm I wonder if they need a support and I messaged my live agent who messaged their live agent and lo and behold I, I found myself supporting them for three nights oh, three it doesn't nights. normally happen that easily but this did and so I actually got to meet Peter Buck and which was a really you know impossible magic lovely thing and I got him to play my Telecaster guitar and sign it. And yeah, it was, seems quite unreal now. And he complimented you on your guitar playing, he, didn't he? He did. It was right at the end of the night and I was just chatting to some people. You know, the room had emptied out and the lights were up. And then suddenly I sort of turned around and he was stood right in front of me. And he just, yeah, he said he really, really liked my guitar playing. And it was it was a very sort of, you know, one guitarist to another type moment. And... It was just a blur, really. Um, you were dazzled. Yeah, I was, I was. It was very special and he wasn't doing it out of politeness, you know what I mean? So, so uh, very magical. That's the kind of validation that, yeah, feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it, it does because it, it has actual meaning and, you know, as I sort of came to discover, you know, he's, he's a serious man and he just he loves to play the guitar and you, when you meet your heroes, I mean, I was almost quite ill about it in the days leading up to it because it meant so much to me. Um, so that can be tricky when you meet your heroes. They they mean everything to you, and, and but the reverse is not true. But, um, but, you know, it was a lovely experience. But it was, you know, it was just, um, you know, a privilege really to just watch a great musician doing his doing his thing night after night and just loving playing the guitar and you know, just enjoying how nuanced his guitar playing is. And that was a lone, lone lady gig, wasn't it? Yeah, I started doing lone, lone gigs um, <laughs> late last year. It started with the in Oct my October tour last year. I just, um, it actually was not planned to be lone, um, but through sort of circumstance, I kind of made, made a virtue out of a difficult situation. And the um, loan shows have been going well. You know, it, I've not... They're difficult because it's on stage. I do like to bounce off particularly drums, you know, rhythm. And you're shouldering the attention entirely. There's nowhere to hide. And, uh, yeah, the pressure was on, certainly, on that Manchester show. And later on, I discovered that Peter Book had watched the show, and I'm very. There's photographs that show him watching it at the side of the stage. Yeah, so they those were loan shows, and I have some more, a few more loan shows coming up as well. It's not. Um, I don't intend to be loan for you know the foreseeable future. It's just it's an in, an interesting interim period because I get to play. I'm playing sort of lesser known gems from albums and it's it's really nice to 
sort of remind people that there's all these other songs as well. Yeah, because you've obviously mainly the last couple of years has been touring former things. Yeah, yeah, very former things focused. So, you know, it was more the sort of electro iteration of myself. So how does that work live then? If, um, are you triggering or is it sort of just playing along to stuff? How does it work in terms of having the other aspects of your music? Um, well, we had backing tracks and then... James Field, the drummer, percussionist, had a Simmons, electronic Simmons kit. So this was something we sort of built. We sort of designed the, you know, built the live show together, kind of figuring it out how we're going to do it. Because I didn't know how to do it because you write the album, spend all this time putting it together, then you've got to pull it apart again to decide how you're going to play it live. So, and backing tracks was new to me because previously I'd always done everything, you know, super live but it because this was uh more electronic oriented it, it kind of had to be back in tracks and so yeah james was kind of at the helm really of triggering things and then kendra frost is also part of your live band isn't she yeah so yeah she she was she was she was great you know this it was a really great three piece to have really and both you know james and kendra you know, great sort of musicians, experienced musicians in their own right. Um, so Kendra was on sort of bass playing duties and synth and triggering. So we managed, I managed to sort of get a lot out of a, you know, relatively stripped back setup. We managed yeah. to create quite a full sound without feeling that it was just playback. You know, there was a lot of realness happening you know that was always important to me that people have some particularly as former things was kind of there's a real sort of scaffolding of um electronic drums sequence drum machines you know beats that i'd written and a lots of percussion and i really wanted to make sure that that was visible so with james's role it was almost more a choreography of well what is obviously playing, which is great, but it was also what looks cool, what looks dynamic. So, and I think that really came across in all the videos and photographs, you know, the, the Simmons kit, and it, it's really, it's something cool to look at, you know, and very dynamic on stage. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there, isn't there? There's like um, the fact that, yeah, we live in a more visual culture, so people are visually stimulated and supported by the visual when they're absorbing audio let's say but I think also that's part of the reason you enjoy and go to see someone live isn't it to actually see them doing what they do instead of that kind of it's just all on a, a listening format if you like. Yeah and I, I sort of let go I was, I was a lot more militant previously about playing every single note live and when I look back some of the sort of things I was doing just playing every note on the guitar you know, it was great, but I sort of it was nice to approach playing this album live in a way that took on board the visual experience because going to see people live is a visual experience, and they don't not everyone necessarily cares that it's like you know a, th a million percent authentic. You know, by which I mean it is every single note played that they're going for an experience and a memory and. It was nice to be able to, for me to be able to just work on backing tracks and go, well, this can be a texture that's on the backing track. It's like with the song Groove It Out, which is arguably my most well-known song. 
I used to play every everything, all the quite complicated harmonic runs whilst singing, and I just thought, you know what? Why don't you just strip that out? Just focus on the the two note groove, and just really get into it live, you know, and get into the groove properly and sing, and you know, not worry about that. So it was nice to be able to just curate it a bit more with the visual in mind and I don't I don't feel like I've cheated anyone or cheated myself because we're still you know three good musicians up there playing a lot so there's, there's so many ways you can present a live show it's great you know Managed your kind of um, development in production, if you like. So, is it has there been any kind of I don't know sound on sound or any in kind of places like that that might have been of help, or is it kind of just been a lone lone journey for that finding out for yourself? Yeah, I enjoy reading articles in Sound on Sound. I do do that, and I do go through phases of just um, you know I watch a lot of demos on YouTube. That's helpful, but I've never you know, and I've picked things up from Bill Skibby, who I've worked with on the last two albums. A lot of it is, has been really instinctive, though, because I, I started off with the Tascam 4-track and then I bought a Tascam 8-track. And I always loved mixing, you know, mixing slash production overla overlap in their meaning. And aside from just the structure of a song, that's just 50% or even less of what a song is and all the, you know, tools that you're disposal in the studio is something that I absolutely love. I mean, I, I, you know, I am a studio head. That's where I'm happiest, really, is, is all the kind of ways in which you can affect the sound is, to me, is so creative. You know, it's, a, again, you know, former art student, I'm always likening it to paintings, and I just love the way you can kind of colour a song. You know, the ways in which you can do that are, are endless, really, so I... I do love the studio processes, but they are largely in um, instinctive. I mean, I, I, for example, I never had, never had a music lesson, never had a guitar lesson, I've never had any kind of te technological lesson, engineering lesson, and I, you know, I got a record deal without those things, just sort of following my nose and tinkering and listening and playing. It's great, great to have those tools, really. And I, there have been times over the years where I've, I've thought, well, should I just do this properly? Should I do, go and do an engineering course? Should I go and do... And I just think, well, nah. <laughs> I just, I probably, you know, I probably couldn't handle just being sat in some sort of classroom anyway. So I just, I think there's, there's lots of ways you can inform yourself. But there's a real joy in not knowing, you know, and I don't think there's a proper way to you know there's, there's not a formula you know there's not a quote proper way of recording you know if it sounds good it's in you know yeah I think you can have the formulas but ultimately yeah the, your favorite records are probably people that that have just trusted themselves and gone for it yeah I mean I suppose I can't help but be very art school about all that you know um obviously like you know, a kind of more mainstream record, like an Adele record or something, there's probably going to be things that are not acceptable. And that's fine. I'm really interested in 
what makes a big mainstream record uh you know what are the what are the qualities that define that so i i you know i'm really interested i mean a lot of stuff i buy on bandcamp is super lo-fi you know it just sounds like it's got someone with a four track in a in a bedroom somewhere but so i love that but i also i'm really fascinated by you know big quote proper records you know and and what 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 goes on you know to make because it's amazing how what you can do in the studio really to make and make a song pop I do, I do find it all fascinating definitely wonderful well so thank you very much for your time really lovely to chat to you today and yeah all the best with musical adventures thanks very much cheers thank you for listening and be sure to check out the show notes for further information as well as links and details of other episodes in the electronic music series And just before you go, let me point you to soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts so you can check out what's on our other channels. This has been a Caro C production for Sound on Sound.